Hey folks, my name is Andy Sido, and you're listening to Middle Class Rockstar. My guest today is leftover salmon bassist, Greg Garrison. Greetings, greetings, welcome back. This is sort of a part two, part two of two. Last week I had Drew Emmett on, um, also of Leftover Salmon, and now this week Greg Garrison, and it's sort of a part of a celebration of their new record, Brand New Good Old Days. Um, And it was fun getting to chat with two individual band members, ask some similar questions and get different takes, and uh, ask some different questions, too, uh, about the album, their own perspective. Greg actually produced the record um, and it was recorded in Asheville back in 2019 and uh, it, it was interesting digging in with him on the process and um, you know how it all came together from his point of view as, as a producer and as the guy who took the tracks and put them on his laptop and did additional work after the studio um, I first know Greg from CU Denver I, it's got to be eight nine years ago now um, I was a student at CU Denver, I think it was my junior year, and Greg came on because one of our teachers was taking a sabbatical, so he came on to fill in and ended up just staying at, at uh, CU Denver, and he's been there ever since. Um, but the class I had with him was Jazz Ensemble. So he came in and took that over and was great, um, and then started a Bluegrass Ensemble. I believe I believe that was him that started that and, and teaches um, several other things at the school now as well. But that's how I first met Greg is, is he was a teacher of mine in, um, in the jazz ensemble at CU Denver and everybody liked Greg when I was, I'm sure they still do, but when I was in school, everybody liked Greg. He was out there doing it. Um, you know, he was out there touring and, and doing the thing that all of us, um, performance majors especially were aspiring to. So it was really, um, influential and really cool to get to have him as a teacher. On top of his work with Leftover Salmon, a band of which he's been a part of since 2000, he's also a founding member of Punch Brothers. He's played with artists such as Lyle Lovett, Bill Frizzell, um, Chris Thiele, Brian Sutton, Dave and Jerry Douglas, Sam Bush, and Del McCurry. He's also recorded two albums as a band leader back in 2011, Low Lonesome, and then again in 2020 he released another album called Sycamore, and he's also a member of the adventure music trio Sockeye. With the Punch Brothers, um, he recorded two albums with them that garnered two Grammy nominations. Um, And since being with Leftover Salmon, since what I guess it's been over 20 years now, he's recorded seven albums with them and, and headlined all kinds of venues and festivals like Red Rocks, the Ryman Auditorium, Vancouver Folk Festival, Bonnaroo, Telluride Bluegrass, all of them. Because because Leftover Salmon has played uh, all of them, all the festivals over the years. Um, anyhow, I want to jump uh, right into our conversation because it's a great conversation. Um, 
But before I do that, I want to mention really quick, if you'd like to help the podcast out in a monetary way, I'm now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a platform where you can support your favorite creatives for a very small monthly subscription. You can join mine for as little as $3 per month. And sometimes I put up exclusive content from these podcasts. For instance, I just had uh, Mickey Raphael on, who's been... Willie Nelson's harmonica player for about 50 years and after our interview we had an additional conversation really centered around harmonica and that conversation is only on my Patreon page you can check that out I also put up production breakdowns for my own tracks how I wrote horn lines and um, creative process things like that I put up songs that I don't release elsewhere Um, I'm a songwriter that's my main thing and so sometimes I put up exclusive songs there that aren't out in the public. I release things early, whatever. Patreon, it's a cool thing. Patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. If you'd like to help out in a non-monetary way, that's great too. Give this podcast a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. It just takes a second or two and really helps out a lot. Okay, wonderful. I think that's all we have to cover and we should jump in. Thanks to uh, Angie at Compass Records for putting all of this together and sending a bunch of emails back and forth to get both Drew and Greg booked. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I'll see you on the other side. Quick thanks to our sponsors, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, go to pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. For any sponsorship inquiries, shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Greg, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Good to see you. God, it's been, been way too long. It's been a while. I think we bumped into each other briefly at at one of those breweries in Golden last year. But I do remember which which one was that? Was that the uh, New Terrain or New Terrain? Yeah, that's right. the big one on the hill, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Was there was there a show? There was certainly there was a show that night, right? I think there was. I can't remember. I mean, I do go there with my family sometimes. Uh, well, did go there with my family, and, and we'll return to going there once. Uh, you know, yeah. I guess we're getting back to that point where you can go and hang out at a brewery. But um, I am trying to remember. Maybe did I? You were playing with Tyler Grant, maybe, or Chris Thompson, or yeah. did you have your own band there? Or yeah, or or maybe I wasn't even playing that. I could have also just been there hanging out. I don't know. Yeah, right. I don't remember. <laughs> Uh, are, are, are you, do you live in Golden or where are you at? I live, yeah, right south of Golden. I'm in like kind of far west Lakewood in the, the nether region of, you know, 470 and I-70 where one block is Golden and one block is Lakewood and one block is Morrison and all that good stuff. So, oh, Well, we're probably right down the street from each other then. That's okay. About, that's about where I'm at. But, uh, oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, so how's the last, uh, how's the last little bit been? I mean, I know you guys just got to kind of do a CD release show and stuff, but what have you been doing the last, uh, year and a half during all this mess? I mean, the last year and a half I've, I've continued teaching obviously, um, at CU Denver. Um, and, uh, so that's been consistent, you know, through the, through the course of the past year, it's been a little different as I've been, everything has been online. Um, you know, so I, I've been home teaching, but, um, staying busy with, 
either um, editing and kind of helping with the mixing process for our album that just came out, the brand new good old days. And then there was yeah. another album um, that I just released with some other friends of mine called bluegrass and the abstract truth. Um, it was like an instrumental bluegrass album that I did all the editing and um, kind of compiling on that as well. Um, yeah. And so there's been projects like that that have, have kept me busy. Um, also went to Nashville for a little while in October, you know, did like the whole quarantine recording deal um, with some friends of mine, a couple guys from Punch Brothers and the guy from Mandolin Orange. And um, yeah, so that'll be coming out at some point. So trying to stay busy with with uh, with projects, you know, um, I will say I've been um, it's been interesting to me, like I really haven't had a whole lot of desire to practice that much. I haven't had a whole lot of desire to write very much, um, you know, but, but have been staying involved with, with various projects. Um, also had a baby um, who's turning one uh, coming up next week. And so he's been uh, keeping me super busy as Congrats. well. So is that, yeah. do you have four now? That's four. Yeah. I have three older ones. Um, so uh, ranging in age from 18, my oldest son, Hayden's going to be going to uh, school of mines next year, wow. um, all the way down to Lennon, who is, uh, who's one. Yeah. Are, are any of them musicians? They all play. Yeah. They, uh, Hayden was played piano and he played saxophone when he was a kid. Um, they, my daughter, Ella just got a ukulele, but she's played violin and flute. And, uh, my middle son, Miles played bass actually, um, for a while in orchestra and all that. So he was a good upright bass player. He's shifted now to, to more just wanting to play electric bass. Um, none of them, I, I don't think any of them will become musicians, but, um, they all are, are very good at it, you know, and could be if they, if they wanted to for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you've, but you've kind of had to, you've had this balance. I mean, you, you're a, a professor, you're a teacher, mm -hmm. you teach at university and you also tour all the time. And I, it's, it shouldn't be an odd combination, but you see a lot of people will take one path or the other, you know, I'm going to, uh, not go to college and tour in a band or whatever. And you mm -hmm. see the other people that say, I'm going to go get my PhD. I'm going to teach at a university. It seems that you haven't had to make any, uh, any compromises there. You're doing both fully. How do you balance the two? Um, I, it, it can be tricky at times. And I, and I think the time management is the, the most difficult part. And I'm sure you remember when I had you in, uh, in the jazz ensemble, I mean, there, you know, there were times when I'd be gone and, and uh, have to either get a sub or cancel class, or we would just do some other things. Um, so, you know, that, that just time management aspect is tricky, especially on the teaching end, you know, and, and making sure that I'm always doing the right thing for the students is something that I, I take seriously. And I've gotten better at it over the course of the years. And, and quite honestly, this year with all the online, um, you know, aspect of teaching and, and proving that you can still learn, you know, um, substantially as a student and teach well, I think if given the right resources and, and uh, you know, technological um, advances that we've had this year with Zoom and everything, um, it's going to be a little bit easier to to do a better job even with the teaching, I think. Um, as far as like compromise, I don't, I, you know, I, I feel like the reason I do both is, is first because I enjoy it. You know, I've always felt like I want to give back to, um, to students in particular and kind of share what I know because I feel like I have a pretty unique set of experiences. Um, I also um, have been in the business long enough and have seen enough ups and downs, you know, whether it was leftover salmon um, completely stopping touring in, in 2004 or uh, when I was in the Punch Brothers for a couple of years and that kind of um, ending, um, you know, at, at a point where I didn't expect it to. I just 
got tired of some of the ups and downs of the music business, which I think any touring musician can relate to. It's not like you get a paycheck every month. You know, we're living um, hand to mouth a lot of the time. So the teaching aspect um, was something that I think just the consistency of that is nice. You know, it's, it's, uh, and the bare bones truth of it is neither one of, you know, my, my touring or my, um, teaching is enough to live on in, in the state of Colorado. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, this right. being like one of the, the more difficult places to, to make a living and, and, uh, and support yourself. Um, so the combination of the two kind of worked to, to turn into a good living. Um, so, um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, the, the, the balance at times, like I said, can, can be tricky. Um, and, uh, this year has given me an opportunity to maybe slow down a little bit, focus more on the teaching, um, as we ramp up into getting ready to play a little bit more this summer. I'm glad that I'm not going to be teaching so I can really throw all my focus into, uh, figuring out how to be a musician again. Yeah. Um, you know, um, we just went through a management transition, uh, with our band and, and so it's been nice for me to, um, since we're not on the road to really throw myself into that and, and learn a lot more about not only our business, but the music business in general, and, and just kind of helping a, you know, a band like this navigate through a big change like that over the past couple months, um, in the midst of a CD, you know, release and all that stuff. So, um, but you know what, I, honestly, like a lot of the things that I learned from other professors and other people that I work with at CU Denver has prepared me and, and given me some insight into how to deal with some of those business aspects. So I'm, very fortunate that I get to do both. I, I know I've worked hard to get there. You know what I mean? There's not a whole lot of people who have um, 20 years under their belt with the band and, and have, um, you know, been able to record and, and perform with a lot of the, like the various, um, you know, musicians that I've gotten to over the years, um, in addition to spending the time and, and uh, dedication to, to earn a doctorate, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that I found a home at CU Denver that allows me to, um, you know, still and respects the fact that I, that I am a performer and, and I'm glad that I have a band that um, doesn't need to go out for six to eight weeks at a time, which would not allow me to, uh, to tour, you know? Right, right. Well, in, in, in this new sort of system where we've all learned how to use Zoom, mm -hmm. um, I mean, do you see, and when I was in jazz ensemble with you, that was probably about 10 years ago, I yeah. think. Yeah, it was my first, first year there, yeah. Yes, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, so... When you left, when you had to leave for a week here and there to go do a show, we all thought that was really neat because, like, well, Professor Greg is out doing it, you know, uh -huh. and, and that's awesome. It, do you do you foresee in the future being able to take class on the road a little bit where you can set up in a hotel room and say, hey, guys, we're going to be on Zoom this Friday, uh, you know, and log in from there? Do you think that's going to be a thing? Oh, without a doubt. And I've already done some of that, to tell you the truth. I, um, you know, the session I mentioned earlier when I was in Nashville um, in October, my bluegrass ensemble at that point, um, I said, OK, this week, you know, Tuesday and Thursday, I'm going to be in a session. I don't know what we're going to be doing, um, you know, I, I but I will uh, set up the, my laptop and turn on Zoom at the, the time that we're normally having class. And you guys just get to be a fly on the wall and observe, um, see what's going on. And, and they loved it. They thought it was great just to. Um, you know, see professionals working, um, some of the, you know, in my opinion, you know, some of the finest bluegrass musicians on the planet getting to observe how they operate in the wild, you know? Um, yeah. and, and I'm, I, I feel like that's one aspect that, um, keeps me relevant in a sense as a professor, you know what I mean? Like you said, I'm out there, I'm out here doing it and uh, I'm always happy to share that with the students and, and 
while I can tell stories, you know, if I, if I leave and then come back and, you know, don't see kids for a week, I can tell them what happened on the road or whatever. I could blog about it or, or post pictures or something. Um, when I can talk to them in real time and, and they can see me sitting on a tour bus or sitting backstage or, um, you know, in the environment of being in a studio with the other musicians and just see how the, the world really operates out there. I think it's super valuable. And it's something that whether it's like a music theory class or music appreciation or an ensemble or whatever. Yeah. I, I hope that I get to do it um, more in the future, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So to jump into the new record that just came out a few days ago on the seventh, mm-hmm. um, the brand new good old days. Um, so I was just chatting with drew about it a good bit and I, and I meant to ask him, but, but forgot somebody told me you produced the record. Were, were you I the did. Producer? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So coming in as a producer where, you're also an equal parts band member with a bunch of other people. I mean, what's the dynamic like? Do you have final say on things? Um, I, I think that I had final say on things to an extent. You know, I, I have final say or like at least a, a strongly voiced opinion as long as I ask everybody else and make sure that, the um, you know, I'm not making decisions without taking everybody's um, thoughts and feelings into consideration. Um, I will say, you know, one of the advantages of having been in a band for so long with these guys and and under, is is understanding what they care about and what their aesthetics are and the kind of decisions I can just make on my own and the kind of decisions that I need to go back and talk to them about, you know. Um, so that is tricky and, you know, it can go either way. It can either be bad or good, but I feel like my relationship with everybody is strong and they have a lot of respect for me as a musician. And, um, you know, they've been around me long enough to know that, um, my ears at times can hear different things than, than theirs can, um, you know, and they will always, uh, default to my decisions on, on whether something, um, you know, is in tune or out of tune or in the pocket or out of the pocket. But I also then have to respect the fact that, you know, they have uh, um, other guys in the bands have stronger, maybe aesthetic senses of like a performance of a tune or something than, than I might. So anyway, it's understanding the um, what people are good at identifying as issues that need to be solved or, uh, or you know, like uh, performance aspects that are good or bad and then them knowing what they trust me with and that I do and don't have to ask them about, um, right. you know, I mean, if I want to get specific about it, it's like, if I'm going to orchestrate a bunch of guitar parts or like edit a guitar solo or something like that, as long as it comes out sounding better than it did before I started, nobody's going to question it. You know what I mean? Right. And if I'm, if I'm fixing some vocal takes, um, you know, whether I'm like putting something in the pocket a little bit, or just like, you know, working a little bit with auto tune or something to make sure that harmonies are tight again, um, I'm not going to, say like hey i auto-tuned your vocal on this part you know because there's because somebody's you know somebody might be upset about that you don't know if they're gonna want to hear that or not um sure and uh but if again if it makes it sound better in the long run but it's still keeping with that kind of character and and uh, vibe that leftover salmon has i think um everybody's okay with it you know but if i'm making huge decisions of like Hey, I pulled out your guitar on this entire first half of a tune. What do you think? You know, I'm always going to ask about that because those are the kind of things that'll come back and and uh, and bite you in the ass at some point. You know, and, and you don't want to make anybody feel like you're doing something intentionally. You know what I mean? Without because um, it might have been something that they intended that I didn't necessarily pick up on or whatever. But um, you know, I, I will say for this album in particular because we recorded it quickly over like four days, and we were kind of learning 
we had the tunes going in, but we were really kind of arranging and, and learning them, you know, in the, in the studio, um, learning them in the sense of learning how to play them together. You know, um, yeah. what happens then is I feel like with this band in particular, you get like really good performances in terms of energy, in terms of intention, in terms of um, pocket, in terms of like shape, but you yeah. don't always get the right parts. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so and then because we live all over the place and, and uh, people have various degrees of, of studio knowledge and, you know, I can do this at home, um, you know, or studio setups at home or, or whatever, what I'm left with is like, or what for this record, what I was left with was like everything, you know what I mean? So you yeah. have like this guitar part that does like all four things that a guitar part would possibly do in a tune or this right. keyboard part that's like, all eight choices that he might've made, you know? Um, and that's actually good in the sense that then I have like a, a bigger uh, palette to kind of draw from. And so then it became a, uh, you know, it becomes a question of like orchestration and, uh, and creative editing and, and knowing what I can leave out and pulling like this, Oh, that guitar part was really cool on the first verse, but I need to get that to the third verse or whatever. Um, you know, so I was left with, with a lot to work with, which is a good thing. Um, but also, um, you know, the, the, the process and it's just like having to go through, make good decisions, make decisions that aren't going to hurt anybody's feelings, um, you know, and that ultimately are going to make the music stronger. So you give considerations to, to everybody's feelings and preferences as well as what's, what's going to make the song as good as possible. I, I know producing records for myself and for other artists, I've sat in a, you know, a million, uh, mixing sessions where I say, okay, here's the latest mix. And I already know what's going to happen. The guitar player tells me we need more guitar here and there. And the drummer says we need more snare. And, and then damn it, I do it too, you know, with yeah. my own stuff. I'm like, well, those keys, you know, um, I mean, is it hard for you to separate yourself and, and your bass part as just a bass part and, and be a producer as a totally separate thing? Yeah, I think so. And, and my, my working, um, my workflow, I guess, um, you know, to, to look into that is once I, um, my tendency is always to play something really simple in the studio, you know, just play something nice and functional. If it needs to be fixed or there needs to be a hook or something interesting, I can always do that later, but I'm not going to know until after I have some time to go back and listen you know what I mean? And hear how what maybe what I'm doing as a bass player affects the song. And, and I've done it enough to understand that, that in the studio, in the moment, like in performance mode, you just play, make it feel good, do what's simple, do what's right. Um, and then when I get into workflow, as far as like editing and producing, you know what I mean? Um, uh, I will always start with the bass and the kick drum just to get it out of the way, just to get the pocket feeling good and everything kind of lined up where I want it not quantized by any means, but just like feeling good and, and feeling right. And that's when I'll address like, shit, okay, that like, I, I wish I would have done this walk up or like I overplayed there. And for me, quite honestly, like my aesthetic as a bass player, I'm usually getting rid of shit. I'm not like putting more in. Yeah. I'm just trying to get to like the bare bones <laughs> yeah, of, right. of uh, what it is. And, you know, I wind up taking out more stuff than I do adding. And so once I get to that point, then I can ignore it. I can just not even think about it. You know what I mean? Um, and, uh, and, uh, so then I build from there. So yeah, my, my process, I guess, for not necessarily getting stuck in that bass player mode is, is, uh, um, understanding that, um, if I get it out of the way and get it fixed early on, then I'm not going to be thinking about it. 
later on. You know, as far as the mixing aspect is concerned, um, you know, bass is just one of those things that like, if it feels right, it feels right. And whether that's, whether it feels right to me or whether it feels right to somebody else, um, you know, there's great records where the bass is really out front. There's great records where the bass is kind of buried. There's great records where, you know what I mean? And and so I, I can't, um, I'm no expert. You know what I mean? There's people right. who are really good at mixing records and I'm, I, I'm good at balancing things. I understand where I want things in space and, and how I want things to sit and how things can kind of be, you know, to get it to like a certain point, but then like to take it to that next step, there's people who are so much better at, um, at that than me. And, and I just tend to tend to leave it up to them. You know, I can give opinions and, and, and whatnot, but. So after you took home, after you took home all these recordings, after those four days in Asheville, um, you did edits and things, and then did you pass it on to someone else to do the final mix and master? Yeah, Mario Casilio, who engineered it and who's also our front of house sound guy, um, said that he wanted to do the mixing. And so what we would do is he would, you know, I'd send him um, my the Pro Tools file and say like, here, I'm done with, uh, you know, this feeling pretty good to me. I got it orchestrated, edited where I want it. Um, you know, and, and I would do some kind of just in my own process, just some panning and some balancing and stuff like that, um, that would all go to him. Um, but no, I didn't give him any direction. I would just say, kind of make it, you know, make it sound how you want to sound it, how you want it to sound. And he would send it back and then we would kind of trade back and forth. And I'd say, well, you know, like maybe bring this up here, maybe bring this up there. But as far as like getting into the nuts and bolts, um, I didn't want to do that because I don't want to fuck with his workflow. Um, you know, I'm not good enough in pro tools that like if an engineer does something as far as like automation and fading, I don't want to mess that up. You know what I mean? So, so once it gets into that mode of like somebody really doing what they can do with pro tools, um, it's just up to my ears and and saying like, yeah, I think this needs to be here. And that needs to be there. Or like, man, that's, you know, um, that, that just that mix in general sounds really thin compared to the other ones or, you know, so we did that. We traded mixes back and forth for probably a good month until yeah. we were both feeling pretty good. And then we went to, from there, both of us went to um, Colin Bricker, who um, right. owns uh, Mighty Fine Productions in Denver, who we both have worked with a ton and, and is a good friend. And uh, it was somebody with ears outside of the project. And we sat with him for a day and, and worked through it um, to get kind of, you know, that final opinion on like, uh, oh, yeah, it sounds pretty good. Yeah. And, yeah, so I, I think, you know, it was like a collaborative, but Mario was definitely the one who was pushing the buttons and, and putting in the plugins and and uh, doing the automations and, and all that good good stuff. I got to let my dog out here real quick. Hey, 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 go for it. All right. Yeah, I'm just good enough in a studio to be dangerous, you know? Yeah. Meaning that I can I can fuck things up really easily if I, <laughs> given the opportunity. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, were you involved... How involved were you, I should say, in the in the songwriting of of the original songs on this record? Are those mostly brought in by Drew and Vince still, or does everybody jump in on those? Um, we all kind of jump in on them. There, there's one that I that, there's one that I wrote um, called uh, "Left Unsung" that was like totally. I just kind of wrote that one from start to finish. Um, arranging wise, we tend to get pretty collaborative, um, and you know it depends on the songwriter. Like Andy and Vince tend to come in with pretty fully formed songs. Um, you know, the danger sometimes is like, oh, that sounds a little bit like this other song that we did before. I, you know, I don't know if you've noticed that, but with songwriters, um, they yeah. tend, you know, and I do it myself. It's like, you kind of write the same song or like the same few songs. Right. You know what I mean? Like there's just these these chord changes or, or uh, melodies or things that we all kind of gravitate to because they're just internalized, you know? And so yeah. 
um, the process with that is when we sit down and rehearse the stuff is just be, being comfortable pointing out like, oh, hey, what if we change this chord? That'll make it way different than this. Or what if you change the melody from this to that? That might make it a little bit stronger. Um, and so we do that kind of stuff collaboratively. Occasionally, Vince and Drew, um, did they, I don't think they wrote anything collaboratively on, on this record. Um, Andy and Vince wrote a tune together. And they have a good work, you know, working relationship. Um, they seem to have been coming up with one tune per record. Um, so for this album in particular, yeah, you know, we mostly brought in our own tunes, but then worked together for um, a few days, kind of uh, coming up with the arrangements and changing things until we felt like they were right yeah. uh, for the entire unit, you know? Yeah. And do you do the same sort of things? arrangement wise with the cover tunes and I, I chatted with drew about the uh the sound garden uh mm -hmm. cover but you you know you also had a john hartford tune on there and a conway twitty song um mm -hmm. when you guys bring that to the band do you do the same sort of uh production and arrangement changes that you would on an original i think so uh i mean black hole sun in particular i remember that one because i i charted i charted that out before the studio session and that i just literally um, you know, had to sit down and, and uh, just write out like the little piano line and write out the form and, and figure out how to get it into the easiest, the most digestible format for um, a studio session for leftover salmon, you know, and, and uh, so that one, I think we just kind of kept the same format, just going straight, straight through the tune, obviously changed the groove and, and changed the, you know, the, the whole kind of underpinning of the tune to bluegrass, but kept all the parts in the same order. Um, and I, and I feel like with certain tunes, you kind of have to do that, especially a classic song like Black Hole Sun, where um, people who have heard it a million times are going to be possibly thrown off if it's all of a sudden completely turned upside down, you know? Yeah. Um, even some people probably think we did turn it upside down just by playing it like bluegrass, but um, right. at least the, the arrangement and like the format and, you know, um, also Soundgarden, you know, they, they sold I, how many millions and millions of records of that song. So they figured it out, you know, I'm not going to, or we're not going to rewrite the book on how to arrange that tune, you know, um, sure. the Conway Twitty tune. I think we kind of tried to play that pretty much like the record too. And, and, uh, and then what was the other one? The John Hartford one? Plus a that synth. One, what's that? I said plus a synth. I don't think Conway Twitty would throw that in his version. <laughs> no, he didn't throw in the Moog. And that was, you know, <laughs> that was probably like some late night shenanigans and, yeah. and uh, um, that just wound up um, working, you know? Yeah. Um, you put Eric Deutsch in a, in a room with a, with a bunch of keyboards and something like that's going to come out at some point. But, um, and then the Hartford one, it was pretty different. I mean, that's one of his earlier recorded tunes. And, and so that one, we just, Vince came in and said, I want to hear this with like a clav thing. That was our only direction. And we sat and did that together in the studio. Um, and, uh, you know, Eric kind of came up with like a cool little clav pattern and then we just built it from there. Um, so that was, uh, in the studio, in the moment, kind of arranging, you know, um, without paying too much attention to the original recording. So I guess it just depends, you know, depends on, on what the source is, um, how closely we feel like we have to respect or pay attention to that source or, or whether we just want to completely, um, you know, destroy it and, and turn it into our own thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so you've been in the group for two decades now. Um, I have. Not a founding member, but you're certainly not the new guy anymore either. Right. Um, did you did you see it, you know, back in 2000 or whenever that was that you first joined? Was it 2000? Mm -hmm. um, did you uh, did you see it lasting for that long? Because it was already an established group that had been around for a while. Was it at the time? Did you see it as a quick stop or, or uh, you're going to be here for a while? 
Not necessarily. I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty loyal guy in general, you know what I mean? In, in my life and, and in music. And I've always been kind of a band guy too. Um, you know, I think even to like, uh, um, you know, the music that I like, I've always gravitated towards bands. Like I love Wilco and they've been around forever and I love the Grateful Dead. And, um, you know, even when I think about jazz, I love the John Coltrane classic quartet and I love Miles Davis because of his specific groups. And so I've always been, um, you know, somebody who appreciates and understands like that band dynamic and, and being with a, a group of people over a long period of time and, and uh, um, getting into that aspect of um, group development and how sounds change over time. So I think I was always hoping that I was going to be in it for, you know, for a long period of time. It's crazy to look back and think that I've been doing it for 20 years. Yeah. Um, I will say that I appreciated my time when I got to go and uh, play with Punch Brothers and, and get that project off the ground. And I do appreciate um, side projects that come up. Um, I think also when I was, you know, in 2000, at that point in time, it's like a, a musician who was just kind of getting off the ground and getting started. Um, being a side man, and especially as a bass player, it's fun and rewarding and easy, but it's it's not always that satisfying just to go from gig to gig you know what i mean right um and not necessarily have the the time investigated um into a project to really explore how things can um sound together yeah um also i found myself kind of right before leftover salmon in a situation of of uh playing um you know some some really amazing having some great experiences playing jazz you know and, and that was music that i was loving at that point and uh really um playing you know, with some, some, at least in my mind, some of the higher level players in uh, Denver and, and Boulder, you know, playing with like Art Landy and yeah. um, getting to, to do things like that and realizing, okay, this was like an amazing musical experience. I'm only getting called for like one or two of these a month and I make about $32 when I do them. You know what yeah. I mean? And yeah, so yeah, yeah. just like the career path thing to me, like I, I was always hoping to find a, a band, uh, you know, um, whether it was something that I started with some friends of my own or jumped into a, um, you know, an existing situation like Salmon, like I was lucky enough to do. Um, but, you know, I, I think as a musician, I knew that that was a, um, maybe a, a, at least not a stable career choice, but more stable than the, the sideman thing. You know, I, I've just yeah. never been good at hustling and wanting to fill up my calendar. And, you know, it's just kind of daunting when I look at a blank calendar and be like, okay, if I'm going to pay rent this month, I got to have, I got to have a, you know, I got to have a gig written in 20 of those boxes at the very yeah. least, you know, yeah, hard to do, man. It's, with it's, eight, and, with and, eight different artists set lists. Exactly. <laughs> and that's a lot of phone calls and a lot of putting up with shit you don't necessarily want to put up with. And right. sometimes dealing with music you don't want to be playing with and, you know, grinning and bearing, uh, grinning and bearing it for, um, you know, 200 nights a year. And, and, uh, I have, and this isn't to like disparage people who are sidemen because it's like, uh, there's, there's people who have made a, an amazing living and are still doing so in Denver. And I have so much respect for them. And, and, uh, also, you know, that aspect of being able to be home and, and, uh, be in one place, not being on the road, I, I think is, is valuable as a sideman. but, you know, you also trade off like, when I'm home now um, from the road, and it's the way it's always been since, I, since I've been in the band, I'm just home. Um, yeah. And with kids, I'm home at night. I get to put them to bed. I get to get up with them in the morning. You know, I'm, I'm not uh, at, a, um, at a club until, you know, two in the morning or something like that on a Tuesday, yeah. Wednesday night or whatever, which, which again, you know, not to disparage that at all. And, and it's still something I do from time to time when I, when I get, um, when friends of mine, people that I love to play with and, and love to work, if they have local gigs, I'm always a hundred percent down to do it, you know, yeah. if the timing is right, but, um, I'm glad it's not something that I'm 
doing, uh, you know, five, six, seven nights a week. Of course. Yeah. And, and, and in that time when you joined, I mean, were you, where were you on your college path in, in terms of your own education and where were you musically at that time? I mean, had you done a bunch of bluegrass yet at that point or were you pretty much in the jazz world? I was playing uh, primarily jazz. I mean, career-wise, I had just finished my master's um, up at UNC Greeley. And in that, I, you know, I sh- had shifted my study to um, classical bass just because it was something that I feel like when I got my undergrad, um, I didn't take very seriously. I was focused more on jazz and didn't necessarily, you know, I was just too young to understand the value of, of like the real sturdy kind of classical foundation, um, you know, especially for an upright bass player. So, um, you know, I was, I was working on my Bach cello suites and Botticini and this and that and playing in the orchestra. And, um, but yeah, my career wise playing wise, I was, uh, you know, playing down at El Chapultepec and I was playing in wedding bands. Um, I had also done a tour with the Motet who are still around, uh, but one of the early versions of the Motet doing a little bit of bluegrass around town with some of the guys who eventually formed Yonder Mountain String Band. Um, and it was something that I loved and, uh, but I hadn't, played it at a super high level, you know, um, but it was something that the, it was music that was really close to me, you know, and, and that I've always loved and appreciated. So when I found out about the gig from Ty North, when he told me that he was going to be leaving, um, you know, I, I kind of dove headlong into just learning all of their music and got all their CDs and got in touch with tapers online and got as many live shows as I possibly could. And, yeah. and literally kind of assigned myself every day, you know, three hours of practice of just like getting into, um, leftover salmon, you know, and, and learning all of their tunes. So by the time I got to an audition, which amounted to literally them, um, you know, I think I went and hung up at Mark Van's house and played with them a little bit. I had a session with Vince and, and uh, our mutual friend, uh, Jeff Austin, um, and uh, up at Vince's house. And once they knew they were comfortable with me as a person, they flew me out to Cincinnati um, and just like threw me on stage. Um, and fortunately I had learned, like I said, you know, I had spent at least a month like learning God I mean, 60 or 70 tunes already and, and getting into the style and, and figuring out how to play bass in that, um, you know, in that, uh, situation. There was no and rehearsal. That was my audition. There was, was no that? rehearsal. Like the audition was just, is he a good hang? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And then a flight to Cincinnati. Pretty much. Yep. Wow. I mean, you know, obviously we picked a little bit. We played a couple tunes and I'd be like, oh, do you know this tune? Or like, what's the tune you learned from our record? I'd say like, oh, I don't know, Euphoria or something like that. And then we play it and they'd be like, oh man, how do you know all our tunes? That's amazing. Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, so we'd play and hang out and, and uh, but it wasn't like full band rehearsal and everybody, you know, and I know they did that with some other musicians at that point in time. Um, but now once, you know, uh, a band like that, it's a lot of it is about vibe and hang and, and, uh, whether you fit in and, and, uh, um, in addition to obviously, uh, making people feel comfortable, you know, and as a bass player, I think that's part of the game is like, um, in bluegrass in particular, it's changed as the years have gone by and the music has gotten more complex, but, um, you know, you don't want to think about a bass player in a bluegrass band. You want them to play the right chords. You don't want them to make mistakes and, and you want them to know the music. And so I think, uh, you know, like I said, they just threw me on stage and we got through a set of music and, and um, they threw some curveballs at me and, and whatnot. As soon as they realized, like, he knows the music, he's not going to make mistakes, you know? Yeah super comfortable, easy, you know, then, then I think it was, uh, uh, you know, then it was, a, it was a good fit for sure. Great. And you were talking about some of these other projects you've had the chance to do in, in the last 20 years. And one of them being punch brothers, how did that first come about the connection with Chris and getting that band off the ground? 
Yeah, that was um, kind of facilitated through Noam Pakelny, um, the banjo player in the Punch Brothers, who actually played with Leftover Salmon for about a year and a half, um, was our eventual, you know, kind of full-time replacement for Mark Van. Um, Noam and I have some shared friends and experiences in Champaign, Illinois, where I got my undergrad and he did as well. We weren't there at the same time, but we had like a, a group of musicians that kind of overlapped me and him. Ah. Um, and so um, that was, yeah, Champaign, Illinois is a, is a, is a key. And then um, once Noam moved to Nashville, he and I kept in touch and still did some playing. And uh, he was, he had his own set at Rocky Grass, the music festival up in Lyons here. And um, so he wanted me to be a part of that performance and so i flew out to nashville to rehearse for that and in the context of that i don't know how it how it came up but Thiele happened to be in nashville at that point in time and he was writing the music that would eventually become um the first punch brothers album in his kind of musical suite called the blind leaving the blind he, he had a movement written for it but anyway he noam said oh we have this jam session and Thiele is trying to put together a band of young musicians you know and i was like oh really chris Thiele? that'd be amazing i'd love to go play and uh, so we went to this session um in nashville and it was me and chris and noam and chris eldridge just the four of us and uh, we just played tunes and chris was telling us about this cool music that he was writing you know for like kind of chamber group and we expected that it was going to be the next amazing Chris Steely solo record with Edgar Meyer and Bela Fleck and Jerry Douglas and you know all these yeah. guys that uh, that we were used to hearing on his records and um, you know about two weeks later we all started getting calls that he wanted us to be the ones who were going to make this record with them um, and so that was kind of the genesis of it. it was just that one jam session just happened to be in the, the right place at the right time and you know Noam being the connection of telling Chris like yeah Greg's a great bass player somebody I, I trust and he'd be in you know, really good for this project. And uh, yeah, so that led to, you know, three years um, of being with those guys and, and a couple of records and many, many amazing musical experiences. So, yeah, it well, and it's documented too. Uh, it, and mm -hmm. it, well, I don't think I've seen it since college, but uh, I think I just maybe moved in with Kevin or something. And, and he's like, oh, we got, you know, Dr. Greg's in this documentary. We got to yeah, watch right. it. And it, and it was fascinating, but there was also, you know, some parts towards the end, there's a little bit of tension too. Um, yep. and you know, I, and I don't, I don't know what the reason was for leaving the band, but what, what sort of happened there that, that caused your departure? Um, I think that, you know, that they were, I was in a different place. I, I, you know, I just had my daughter, um, Ella at that point. Um, I think that, you know, I was the older guy in the group. Um, the only one with kids and uh, they just wanted to be able to move a little more quickly, you know what I mean? And, and take yeah. advantage of opportunities and, and not necessarily have to, um, to be cognizant of somebody who had a family and, and, and just, uh, you know, a more difficult path to being in certain places at certain times, you know, right. um, which was, is fine. And, and, you know, I think in hindsight, um, you know, Paul Covert is an amazing bass player and a much, um, you know, I, I'd say probably a better fit for what they do because he's he's definitely more on the level of like a, a virtuosic player. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's a good match for what everybody else in that band can do. Um, whereas I've always been kind of a meat and potatoes bass player, um, you know, who who has experience in a lot of different kinds of music, you know, but I would never hold myself up as, as somebody who's on the virtuosic level with uh, Edgar Meyer or Paul Coward or like Ethan, Ethan uh, Josephowitz, who's a, another guy who can kind of play in that, uh, you know, ultra kind of virtuosic uh, bluegrass mode. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like they were seeing the writing on the wall that they needed somebody maybe who was, who was 
closer to their age, who is possibly a little more in the virtuoso category. And, uh, you know, they needed to, they wanted to move to New York. That wasn't going to be a reality for me. So all of these things kind of congealed to, um, you know, to just being a, a natural, um, you know, parting of the ways, I guess. Do you stay in touch with them at all? I do. Yeah. Yeah. Noam Pakelny and Chris Eldridge were just a part of the project that I, I did in Nashville over the break. Um, I did, uh, Chris called me to do one of the, before it was live from here, when it was still Prairie Home, Home Companion, I played on one of those shows in Philadelphia with them and we run into each other from time to time. I mean, there was definitely a cooling off period, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. where I was, yeah. I was, uh, not feeling that great about everything and, and, uh, you know, they were um, doing their thing, but, you know, I think any, um, any situation like that that's more like a, a divorce than anything you know what i mean uh, just the end of a, a relationship just takes a little time for everybody to get back on their feet and to get some perspective on it and you eventually if uh the personalities are, are reasonable and and the reason for being together in the first place was strong you're always going to come back together and, and find that friendship or or uh common you know whether it's musical ground or or um, personal ground, you know, again, in the long run. So, yeah. And, you know, honestly, I'll say like Paul Cover was the first one who kind of pulled me back into the fold with those guys. Um, you know, and uh, I remember we were on like a, a radio show or something in, in um, West Virginia. And we happened to be playing the same day that the Punch Brothers had. And I hadn't seen him in probably three years or something. And Paul was the first one to come up to me and be like, Greg, you know, and, and really try to like, kind of bring me back into the fold. And, and, uh, you know, so I'll always appreciate Paul, not only for his bass playing, but for, um, you know, kind of wanting to bridge that gap, but yeah, I love those guys and they're amazing musicians. And I always look forward to interfacing and, and, you know, playing music with them, or at least just like having a beer and, and saying, Hey, and catching up whenever yeah. I get to see them. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many, um, there's so many other artists you've gotten a chance to play with too. Um, one that comes to mind is Lyle Lovett. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, you're a, a trained bass player and a, you know, bluegrass player now, and you've done all these different genres, classical. What was it like and what did it do for your bass playing and musicianship playing for someone who's a great songwriter like that? Boy, I, you know, the thing that stuck out to me was just how specific the bass parts are for the songs, you know, like meaning, um, if on the record, you know, Victor Krause, who's played with Lyle forever, who's just an amazing bass player and somebody that I've always looked up to and, and you know, has been one of my favorite bass players. Like if he plays, um, if he plays the third under a five chord, you play the third under the five chord. You know what I mean? Yeah, if, yeah. If, uh, if, if, his, if he's playing halftime for this one verse, you play halftime for that one verse. If like you're playing a low A, um, at the beginning of this, if he's playing low, low A on the record at the beginning of this, uh, you know, chorus, you play the low A, you don't play the high A, you know what I mean? So it's like yeah. super specific. And um, I remember when I sound checked with Lyle, the, the main kind of gig that I did with him was on something called Kayamo Cruise, um, which is a songwriter cruise that happens, um, you know, it's like a cruise ship songwriter floating festival essentially. And I remember the first sound check, I don't remember what tune we were playing, but I, I played something in the wrong octave or I, or I, you know, played something um, in halftime or like went to a one five when I should have just been pedaling the route. And he hears all that, like loud noticed and he turned around and said, no, that's where it's supposed to go. You know, it's supposed to do that instead. So for wow. me to understand that relationship, you know, as a bass player and especially somebody in bluegrass and jazz, who it's like, um, you just kind of, you know, you make things up as, as you go. Yeah. Um, to really get into that aspect of like, okay, this is country bass playing, which I know how to do from playing bluegrass and, and playing in leftover salmon, but this is really, really specific 
highly tailored, like well thought out, um, you know, and, uh, and well understood, meaning like um, it has to be the same thing every time, you know what I mean? And so to get into that aspect of it and to understand that like um, this, you know, Lyle he keys off of what he's hearing from the bass. And if you, if you take a step to the left, when you're supposed to take a step to the right, even if it's a similar step, that yeah. might be right. Technically it's not the one that he wants there. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so um, understanding that I thought, I think was a big aspect. Then also, man, just to like um, the respect that, uh, or just like the faith that he showed in me, you know, cause the, the recommendation to play in the group, he didn't even want, he didn't even, I never had to like audition for a while. Love it. You know, just guys in his band kind of said, Greg will be great. And he told me when people in my band that I trust and respect, tell me that you're going to be great. I know you're going to be great. And so, you know, that puts you in this position of like, holy shit. Okay. I need to make this happen. You know right. what I mean? Um, and so I spent a ton of time learning his tunes and practicing. And, and again, you know, in the same way with, with the left leftover salmon thing, I just wanted to step into that situation and not be something that anybody had to worry about, you know? Yeah. Um, cause I mean, it's stressful, you know, bass player, like if you have somebody playing fiddle or playing saxophone or something, they can stop and they can, you know, flub a couple things up or whatever, you know, it's easy to hide, but the bass player, if they yeah. fuck something up, everybody knows, you know? Right. Right. And, uh, so to really like put the work into and the time into matching what his expectations were for me as a musician and, and the faith that he showed in me, um, you know, as, as a bass player, I think was, um, you know, important, important. I mean, it was like, made me feel good about myself as a player, but also just made me know, look, I got to put the time and I got to put the work in because I'm not going to fuck this up or allow love it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's, that's uh, really neat how, you know, he was able to just, Hey, they vouch for you. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to, you're going to take care of this for me, you know, and yeah. pressure's on certainly, but, but it's also cool that, you know, you had that, that reputation and you had that good relationship already to where you could just kind of jump into a gig like that. Yeah, for sure. And man, you know, I mean, it would like talk about rewarding after we got done with the, we did three shows on that boat, um, all different songs, you know, occasionally there might be a request or something that came in. Um, and, uh, I remember sitting down at, at, uh, um, you know, the bar and it was Lyle and, and Russ Kunkel, who was a drummer on it, who's just an amazing drummer. He's played, you know, I mean, if you look at Russ Kunkel's history, he's been on so many important records and, and whatever. And he thanked me, shook my hand and said, you were a true professional. And that was like the highest compliment I had ever gotten. Wow. And Lyle Love bought me a glass of wine. It was like, you did an amazing job. And that was just like the highest praise I ever could have gotten, you know, yeah. um, and, and made it all worthwhile. And then he called me for another gig after that, you know, which was again, like another, just like reaffirmation that I did a good job and, and, uh, that I covered my end of the bargain. Um, so, you know, I, I feel like it really taught me how to be a, a true professional in, in, uh, in, in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. Yeah. La last thing I wanted to ask you about real quick is you also have been putting out some of your own solo stuff. Uh, mm -hmm. and the last thing was at low lonesome was 2011 until during the pandemic, you released, uh, Sycamore, um, mm -hmm. You know, and I think a favorite off of there is Tear Down the Grand Ole Opry. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so what what is that? What does that mean to you with all these other things you're doing and being a bass player where by nature you're going to be a side person most of the time? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you to put out um, your own records as well? I, I think a lot of that comes from just the drive to, to feel like I'm um, – you know, I mean, I'm a musician in addition to being a bass player, you know, and so 
wanting to push myself to come up with something creative, to have my own voice, to, to make a statement from time to time. Um, you know, that particular project was uh, really trying to integrate some of my love for folk and put it into a, and country music and put it into more of an improvised format. Um, you know, and, and I think also I hadn't made a record in a while, so I just needed to do something. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's a cool record. I mean, so many great um, local musicians, you know, um, Dave Devine sounds incredible on guitar. And and, uh, and I wanted to take advantage of Don, Don Byron, who's playing clarinet on there, who was teaching at Metro for a minute, but who's always been one of my um, favorite, um, you know, musicians in general, great composer and has made a, a million great records. And um, Shane Ensley on trumpet and, and then also got to feature Sidney Clapp on vocals, who was a, a fellow student of yours. I don't know if she overlapped with you at all at, at CU Denver, but um, yeah, you know, I don't know. It was a cool, cool, uh, cool project and, and something that um, I, I recorded it well before the pandemic, but just didn't get my act together to, to release it, you know, to put it until post pandemic. Yeah. Well, did we cover everything? Did we get your entire bio in in 45 yeah. minutes? I think so. Yeah. You know, the only other thing I would say is that the other record I mentioned uh, called Bluegrass and the Abstract Truth, that's one that just came out. Um, too. And that's with uh, Grant Gordy, who was from Colorado, um, originally ah. lives in New York now. But uh, Joe Walsh, who's a, a great mandolin player, and Alex Hargraves, who's an incredible fiddle player. And that's like an instrumental, all instrumental bluegrass record that I'm super proud of. Um, it was recorded right before the pandemic, um, but we um, just put it out April 16th. Okay. Um, and that's up on Bandcamp and it's been getting good reviews and, and uh, Danny Barnes, the great banjo player, did the art for it. And um, that's one I'm, I'm uh, even more than Sycamore, like super proud of. I think it's just a, a um, yeah, really special album. So, Well, for the listeners, there'll be a link in the show notes if you want to listen to Bluegrass and the Abstract Tooth or Sycamore or uh, the brand new Good Old Days which is what yeah, we were on talking about originally, the new leftover salmon record. So yep. um, if you wouldn't mind, stay on the line with me for just one second. But uh, in front of our audience, thank you so much for, uh, for chatting with me. Sure, man. It was fun. All right. Big thanks to Dr. Greg Garrison for taking the time to chat with me, and it was great to catch up. It's been a while. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, you can send them to me, middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. Um, if you liked what you're hearing, please subscribe, listen, rate, review, tell your friends about it, whatever. Join the Patreon, patreon.com slash andysido, S-Y-D-O-W. Okay, all good stuff, all helps out. Um, but other than that, that's it. Thanks for listening. Um, I've got A.J. Croce on next week. I don't don't usually say who the next week's guest is, but I've got A.J. Croce on next week. Um, phenomenal songwriter, piano player, musician. He's also the son of Jim Croce. Um, and, and we had a, a, a really, I don't know, it was a really insightful conversation for me as a piano player, and he, he's just, he really is a phenomenal player and songwriter. Um, you know, we talk about what it's like living around his father's legacy, doing the same profession, what that's like, um, living in Nashville. His, his wife passed away a few years ago, so we chatted about that a little bit too. Um, it's just a great, really personal conversation. So subscribe, um, and uh, that conversation with A.J. Croce will be out next Thursday. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you very soon. Bye-bye. Thank mm-hmm. you.